Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Eddie Brill. It's like the Elks Club. It's fucked up guys who have like hats with a tassel on it. They dress in suits and you know, whatever the fuck makes them happy. You know. That and more. But before that, I just wanted to tell you about our fantastic deal that we have with adamandeve.com. And when I say fantastic, I mean Risk fans have written in to say, holy shit, this is such a great deal. For a limited time, you get 50% off just about any item. And they have a gargantuan selection. All right, we're talking about some of the very best brands like Lilo, Rocks Off, Fleshlight, Liberator, Lubes from Pure or Wet. Adam and Eve's own condoms are fantastic. And when you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs, plus a free exclusive gift, and on top of it all, they'll throw in free shipping. As you know, of course, the exclusive gift is a clit bumper. Someone out there who has taken advantage of this offer, email us, let us know how the clit bumping's going. Listen, you go to adamandeve.com and use the code RISK at the checkout for this amazing offer. That's RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is tortoise behind me now we're calling this week's episode unexpected three stories that go to places the storytellers just did not see coming but before we get to the stories i would like to address something that's on my mind right here right now I got an email from a fan last week, and I don't often talk about specific emails that people send in, but this one seemed worthy of addressing because I get more or less this exact same email every couple months. I'm not exaggerating, like several times a year. This exact same message comes into my email box. It's a different fan each time, of course, a new fan who is compelled to write me this exact same sentiment. It goes something like this. Hey, Kevin, uh, I'm a huge fan of the show and I'm writing sincerely out of love. I just thought I'd offer some helpful advice because, you know, I just believe in the show so much. I think you should keep doing risk exactly as you're doing it, except for one thing. Kevin, you should remove yourself from the show I, I i don't want to be too blunt but your voice is like nails on a chalkboard the microphone does not like you and 
your personality is terribly hard to stomach. I, I mean, I wish I could say otherwise, but you are just excruciating <laughs> to listen to. Now, again, I'm only saying this out of the sincerest love and because I'm sure that, you know, you probably care about the good of the show overall as much as I do, if not more. Sincerely, John Doe. Now, I used to get so hurt by those sorts of messages, much more so than I do nowadays. Thank God. I was once so hurt that I recorded this episode called Try in 2014, where I addressed it head on right at the beginning of the episode. So now when we get these love the show, hate Kevin emails, as we call them, I suggest that that particular fan go back to listen to the Try episode as a reference point, because that's where I first explained that this show has a philosophy behind it. The idea is very simple. It's just that there are sides of you that you stifle. You know, throughout your day, there are tones of voice that you avoid using. There are times when you might start somewhere deep in your belly to laugh or cry or start to get caught up in wonder, but then cut yourself off from that. There's real reactions from entire sides of yourself that you're not used to, you know, letting exercise and breathe in the, in the light of day. So this show has the goal, you know, not always attainable, but at least the goal of creating a space where people can attempt to let that stuff out. And so I, as the, you know, the curator, the, the performers, coach, the host of the show, I try, and I admit I fail most of the time myself, but at least I try to act as a sort of a Pied Piper, being an example by attempting to be as loud or hurt or, you know, angry or, or, or nervous or whatever as I feel in the moment, you know, <laughs> rather than, you know, just be a regular radio host reading from a script and observing <laughs> standards and practices. So, okay, it's one thing to find my personality and voice irritating. Nothing you can do about that, really. But to write it to me and to be basically saying, hey, please, could you do us a favor and shut up and disappear? That seems to me, at least to some extent, to not be on board with the, the very spirit of the show. But why don't I just say what I really feel since we're uncensored here right why don't i why don't i say some of the things i really want to say to some of these folks first if you know how to press play on a podcast app you know how to work the other buttons on it second you do understand that ira glass and sarah vowell and karison keeler have voices that annoy some people do you not consider this I love the voice of Bob Dylan, but I find the voice of Maria Callas a bit unnerving. Now, have I ever emailed the Metropolitan Opera to say, oh, hey, could you do us all a favor and remove her voice, please, from the archives of Live from the Met? No, of course not, because I get that 
taste is idiosyncratic. But third, and this is the real nugget. If Maria Callas were still alive and I had the occasion to meet her face to face, would I say bluntly negative things to her about her voice and personality? No, because I have the most basic levels of empathy and compassion that come into play when a human interacts with a human. I wouldn't think, well, this woman has more fame than me, so ordinary rules don't apply, and her voice and body are more or less a commodity for the public to purchase and review. Therefore, I can speak to her about parts of herself like I'm reviewing a blender on Amazon. No, because that's not a humane way to interact with another being. So, we hugely appreciate any and all emails or comments that are out there about the show. But, for better or for worse, I'm not going anywhere. I can at least promise that I'll keep trying, probably keep failing most of the time, but I'll keep trying to be as authentically me as I can be in doing the show. Also, we can all rest assured that by saying I like Dylan, but not Callus, I have today officially destroyed my standing in the gay male community. So, you see what sacrifices I make for the sake of being honest? You motherfuckers! <laughs> Alright! Let's get to the stories. In just a bit, we're going to hear from the lovely and super brilliant young new New York comedian Bowen Yang. But before that, a legendary figure on the New York comedy scene, Eddie Brill. Eddie was on the Letterman show almost as much as Letterman, I think, and became the talent coordinator there for a while as well. Here he is now at the Risk Live show at the Bell House with a story we call Mean Streets. Thank you so much. I almost feel like, so I'm taking a shit. I feel like I should start that way. <laughs> but I did earlier, so I don't have a story. How about it? So, um, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I was, uh, <laughs> all right. You know you're gonna get that when you're in Brooklyn. You get that when you're in France. I'm from Brooklyn and people will cheer. And uh, I had a very fantastic childhood. Even though we had no money, I had, a, I had an incredible mom who was a, a big fan of the arts. And with whatever little money we had, we'd go to Broadway shows. I got to see Barbara Streisand do Funny Girl on Broadway. And I got to go to a great concert, saw Ike and Tina Turner in Brooklyn perform, which is the best show still to this day that I've ever seen. Because my mom, it was cheaper than a babysitter to actually take me to these events. It was great. And I got to see amazing things. And the thing that we love the most, that we still love to this day, is the movies. I'm a huge movie fan. I, uh, I lied to get a job at the movie theater. I was 14, you needed to be 16. And I just loved it with all my heart. Um, in 1969, 1970, my parents got divorced and we moved to Florida. And uh, my stepfather was amazing and a terrific man. And my mom spent a lot of time with him during that era. 
So she kind of fell in love with this guy, and I had to go on my own to see movies. So I did, uh, and I went all over Florida to go check out every movie that was out there. And some movies were rated R, and there was one movie, it came out the day before my 15th birthday, and I did a lot of research on it, because that was my mom and I would do. We would do a lot of research on the movies, and really, it was really fun to learn about the great actors and the great directors. And the movie that was coming out the next day that I wanted to see was uh, Mean Streets with Robert De Niro. Right, so some people know it. It's the movie that changed my life and even made me more into films. And the problem was the movie was rated R. I was gonna be 15 the next day. Uh, I know you wanna do the math, I'm 57. I'll save you, you know, on that. <laughs> I understand, I hear the heads clicking. Um, and so the problem being uh, 14 or 15 and the movie's rated R is you can't get in unless you have an adult guardian. And I didn't let that bother me, I was a nuisance. <laughs> I would go to the movie theater parking lot and ask couples if they would bring me in as their kid. <laughs> right. Now, normally you'd be, you'd be an asshole doing that, and I probably was, you know, kind of assholey in that way. But I didn't give a shit if they let me in, I got into the movies, I didn't have to hang out with them in the theater. They got me in, and then I sat by myself and enjoyed these films. And when the movie started out, and if you've seen the film, and if you haven't, go tonight after the show to rent it, because it really is, uh, it was impeccable. Uh, Martin Scorsese is the director. It's De Niro's like second film, but it's the one that changed his career, Harvey Keitel. And it starts out with one of the greatest lines in film history. No one makes up for their sins in church. You do it in the streets, you do it at home, and the rest is bullshit. And I was like, oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> Your rhythm of the who was incredibly impeccable. In the streets, the rest is bullshit. Woo! It was, that was rhythmically phenomenal. You couldn't ask for more, so be proud, be, and thanks for being loud. Okay. That's how I felt. When I heard that, that was the whole thing of my life. I had gone through religion, uh, I had a mixed religion household, so I knew that it was all bullshit. And I knew it at a young age, which thank God, you know, that I knew. Um, I learned that. So anyway, so the Nero film was amazing. And the, the next scene, De Niro blows up a mailbox and then it's the greatest soundtrack in the history of the world and one of the greatest movies ever. And I became a De Niro freak. And I saw every film of his. I, whatever came out, a Raging Bull or whatever, I just would go and I'd be first in line and I would, and as I got older, I didn't need to ask people to let me in with them. And I, but I never met De Niro and I've been, you know, around New York a lot. And everybody I meet in New York has a De Niro story, except me. Everybody, my brother-in-law goes, yeah, I've met De Niro. I was like, how the fuck did you meet De Niro? Oh, you know, at the store and there he was, he's buying stuff. I'm like, fuck, he's my hero. You have a story. And you know, I worked at the Letterman Show for 17 years. I never met De Niro till toward the end. I didn't really get to meet De Niro and I wanted to meet him and I wanted to tell him how much, I wanted to be foolish and in front of him and go, yeah, 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 De Niro. <laughs> you know, I wanted to have that experience. So we'll fast forward to 2001. Oddly enough, it was October 15th. And I, when I did the research for the story, I was shocked because it was exactly, you know, um, here you have to do the math, 27 plus one is 28 years exactly um, since the movie came out, which was so weird. And it was a, a party that wasn't a fun party, but it was all the biggest stars in New York raising money for 9-11 that just happened just a month earlier. And uh, I came a little bit late to the party. It was the day before my birthday. My girlfriend had taken me to uh, see Urine Town, which I guess fits in the theme of the show so far. And, uh, and it was all right. It was a decent play. 
But I got there, and when I walked in the, the party, I saw my two best friends in the world straight away. And they're like, wait. And just as I saw, I looked to the left. There was Robert De Niro. Yeah, there you go. You guys, you guys have worked as an audience before. I, don't bullshit me. You guys are good, very good. And, and I didn't know what to do. I was panicking. So I remembered another story at that moment, which now I'll take you backwards, to 1987. And it was November of 1987, and I had decided to move to Los Angeles, California, because Sam Kinison convinced me to move there because that was the place to be if you wanted to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It was the only comedy club in the world that they would really go to uh, and, and find the comics for that. So the first night I go on stage, and I follow some comedian, I have a decent set, but after the set, a couple comes up to me and they go, look, we really enjoyed your show. We came to see the guy before you and he was shit. But you were great. It's like, why the fuck did you have to ruin my excitement by telling me about the other guy? And fuck you. You know, the other guy's a friend of mine. And so he didn't have a great set. I didn't have a killer set. It was just okay. Fuck you. But I, they had a gig and I'm like, okay. My, that was my inner voice going, fuck you. And, you know, my outer voice says, where's the gig? Um, I was broke. I had no money. Um, and they said it was a $200 gig. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You know, and, and uh, fantastic. And it was for the Shriners. You know what the Shriners are? Some of you, yeah, it's, they have, it's like the Elks Club, you know, it's fucked up guys who have like hats with a tassel on it, and they dress in suits, and you know, whatever the fuck makes them happy, you know. <laughs> so I borrow my friend's car, I don't have a car yet, and I'm driving, and I dressed up nice, thank God. And as I'm driving to the place, because we didn't have GPSs or cell phones or anything at that time, and I'm driving, and I look in the place I'm going to, the building's huge. I misheard them. It wasn't the Shriners. I was working at the Shrine Auditorium. Okay, that was one person. Oh, okay. 8,800-seat theater that, where the Academy Awards were. Fuck. I'd only been doing stand-up for like three years. I'd never worked for more than, this is, was probably the biggest size crowd I'd worked to up until that point. And I started shitting my pants, not literally. Uh, again, it would fit if I did in tonight's show. And so I knock at the back door to ask them if I'm in the right place. Hi, my name's Mr. Brill, follow us, Mr. Brill. I had never been called Mr. Brill. I was like, okay, let's go to this thing. And I walk up these very old stairs and I'm passing different dressing rooms. And on the left and right are all these famous The Shirelles and the Four Tops and Jerry Lee Lewis and Jimmy Stewart. Yes, there's no other Jimmy Stewart if you started to go through your heads to figure out, is he a rock and roller from the 80s or? No, Jimmy fucking Stewart, Eddie Brill. I'm like, what the fuck? I go in the dress room and I shit myself. That's what happened. No, I was, couldn't believe it. I'm like, what am I doing here? And I look at this, only the room is, is very empty, except for one sheet of paper with the order of the show. And it's like Jimmy Stewart, Eddie Brill, the Shirelles. Like, what the fuck? Where, what the, who, is this a joke? Is it, you know, the guy before me on the stage of the comedy store, he's probably set this whole shit up, you know? It's like... No, but I, obviously not. So the, the stage manager comes in, he goes, nice to meet you, you're on the show, you have to do seven minutes. I go, what is it? It's a benefit they do every year for children. Um, they came to see the guy before you and he was shit, but they chose you. I'm going, what the fuck is going on with this? Everyone knows that the guy sucked before me and then I'm the one that's chosen. I swear to God. I, I, and uh, 
he goes, and the stage is very big. And I go, well, what is the thing? It's in a, we raise money for children, underprivileged children. We do it every year. And it was originally going to be Joey Bishop. Uh, Joey Bishop was the Rat Pack Sinatra guy. What the fuck am I doing in this place? So now we go down to the stage, and luckily, the MC of the event I knew. And he was a comic named Vic Dunlop, who unfortunately passed away a year ago. And he was very funny and very sweet man. And he said to me, Eddie, the trick to working a room that big is take your time because the jokes go all the way to the back of the room and give it time to come back. Really be deliberate and you'll do well. So I'm freaking out, and look on stage, and there's Jimmy Stewart on stage. And, he, and he's up there, and he, uh, the, I know! <laughs> And I got a little bit of a chub, I have to admit. I'm this fucking, it's a wonderful life, Jimmy Stewart. And he's reading poetry, because he writes poetry. And he's like, well, I've never seen a lovelier tree than a beautiful flower. Fantastic, lovely. And a, you know, it's like getting, and the, the, the stage manager's talking to me going, look, when they start announcing you, make your way to the stage, it's so big. You know, whatever. And I said, so big, you can see it? And he said, no, no. He, I just made that up now. And, uh, and he goes, ah, oh, a beautiful flower. And thank you very much. And the place goes ballistic, of course. It's Jimmy fucking Stewart in his prime. And he, so he starts walking off the stage. And I'm walking on there announcing, ladies and gentlemen, you're next to me. He's not done anything you've ever heard of. Um, he, we were supposed to get the guy before him, but he sucked. And now the, no, they didn't say that. That's what I was thinking in my head. And, uh, and I, they're bringing me up, and I'm working my way. And there's Jimmy Stewart. I don't know what to do. So what do I do? I go. And then he goes. Boom. You know what I mean? Fucking Jimmy Stewart. So I do my show. Seven minutes. I fucking crush. Thank you, Vic Dunlop, for the great advice. And I get off stage, and there's Jimmy Stewart, and he's like, oh, very funny, Eddie. Slam, <laughs> you know, cream uh, corn in my shorts, and it's just fantastic. And, and then Jerry Lewis runs around, and he's very funny, son. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? So now, here we are back in 2001, and I remembered what I had to do when uh, Robert De Niro started walking my way. So he's walking, my, he shook a couple of firemen's hands, he's leaving the party, I could see my friends in the background, and I go... <laughs> he looks at me, stops for a second, and then grabs me and hugs me for the best hug I've ever had in my entire life. I am telling you, I have never, I swear on my life, I've never had a better, longer hug before or since then. And I think he thinks I was Danny Aiello. I think he thinks... I was Danny Aiello, because no way does he give a stranger a hug like that. Mm. And my friends were looking at me and they're like, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. What the fuck's going on? And the whole party's looking at me and every New York star is there. Um, Edie Falco and James Gandolfini and Matt Dillon and uh, Richard Gere and Carrie Otis. I mean, every star in all of New York is there to help raise money for the firemen. And they're looking like, what the fuck is this guy? And I'm like, I don't even fucking know myself. <laughs> so the hug was over and he goes, have a good night. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I walked through the party and was like, oh, who the fuck is this guy? Who the fuck is this guy? And I walked up to my friends, they go, how do you know De Niro? I go, I don't. <laughs> They go, are you kidding me? You were fucking him on the dance floor in front of everybody. So he was fucking me. I just you know, gave him a head nod and 
but that's all that happened. So all through the night, I'm walking through the party, and everyone's like, I get the, you can hear them. They don't, they, they're trying to be subtle, but then who the fuck is this guy? So now I go to the bar to get everyone a, a beer in my little group of friends, and Clarence Williams III comes up to me. And if you don't know Clarence Williams III, he was Link on the Mod Squad in the 70s TV show, but also he was in all those shitty M. Night Shyamalan movies. But he's a brilliant, brilliant actor and a great, great guy. And he, I didn't meet him till after, but he had come up to me, and I knew he wanted to ask me. I knew he wanted to know how I knew De Niro. But he was one of these guys who didn't want to come off first saying it. It was the longest intro bullshit conversation small talk ever. So what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. Oh, very nice. So where do you work? And blah, blah, blah. I'm going, get to it already. Get to it. So he goes, and by the way, how do you know De Niro? I go, yeah, I know him from Mean Streets. I wasn't lying. Anyway, have a lovely night. Thank you very much. You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. The rest is bullshit and you know it. Flop my bing bing. Mm. Hey, asshole. Flop my bing bing. Mm. Fucking asshole. Yeah. Hey. Hey. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? What the fuck is wrong with you? What are you talking about? What's the matter with you? What are you talking about? Bing, bing, bing. I lose four hundred dollars. Stupid. What's the matter with you? You're a fucking jerk. Come on, Barbie. Stop fucking around. Come on. What's the matter with you? Come on, motherfucker. I'm big shot. That's too bad. Isn't that too bad? Come on. Come on. Come on, bitch. Come on, bitch. Put this in your ass. I don't give two shits about you. Um, hello. So uh, back in college, I took an organic chemistry course. Thank you. Yeah, because apparently I am an academic masochist. And uh, I remember I was fixated on this one paragraph in the textbook that talked about amine chemistry. Now, for you humanities majors, um, amines are, of course, uh, chemical derivatives of ammonia that, of course, uh, comprise of a nitrogen trivalent atom. This is all stuff you learn in preschool. Um, and I remember this paragraph because the author extolled the mental stimulating uh, abilities of these chemicals and it was very clear that he had been in a k-hole or two in his lifetime <laughs> so I'm going to start this story off by describing to you all a molecule a very important molecule that has the following composition and structure a benzene ring with an ethyl group that juts out and an alpha carbon that branches out into a methyl group and an amine group that hosts its own methyl group that full systematic name of that molecule is alpha-dimethylbenzenethanamine, better known by its name as methamphetamine, even better known by its more colloquial name um, as Lindsay Lohan's Lunch. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're all pretty familiar with meth, I think. Um, <laughs> And it's adverse effects. We've all seen the before and after slideshows and the bags of teeth. Or um, my favorite, uh, Kristen Ritter dying like a super pretty death in Breaking Bad. 
And so we've all been inundated with all this meth imagery because it really is this really severe drug. Um, and for me, this all started back in middle school when I took a health class um, uh, that was being held in this musty, dank taint of a room uh, where the teacher, Mrs. Wilkinson, one day made us flip through all these anti-drug pamphlets that were so desperate to be cool. Um, each pamphlet for each drug had a color, so LSD was red, ecstasy was pink, and heroin was blue. It was like the Power Rangers of substance abuse. <laughs> and when I got to the jaundice yellow pamphlet on meth, I remember reading about it being a mental stimulant uh, that was both an aphrodisiac and an, uh, a euphoriant that kept you awake for hours and hours and hours. Now, um, even as a seventh grader, I thought, wow, this sounds like the best thing ever. <laughs> and so this pamphlet did a really good job of selling me on this stuff, <laughs> even though uh, it was supposed to arm me with the knowledge and um, the hot scoop on how to identify and avoid these hard drugs. <laughs> which is all well and good unless you don't retain that knowledge into adulthood. Um, so cut to 12 years later and I've grown into a drug-free, undefiled, uncontaminated adult, give or take a joint or two or a hundred. And I've nary injected a speedball. I'm sitting in the audience of a cabaret show that my best friend Matt is about to perform in, and I'm there uh, being a super supportive friend, super good friend, when I hear my phone buzz and I see that I've gotten a message on a gay hookup app. The exact hookup app is not relevant. They are all horrible. <laughs> they all um, have terrible monosyllabic names that are disgusting to say out loud. And all those names are affronts to the English language. Um, and this is a moment where I should say that uh, as a gay Asian male, a single gay Asian male, um, I don't get very many messages. And you can extrapolate that I don't have sex too often. And uh, that's not a choice. That's just a symptom of Western culture desexualizing my people. Um... <laughs> So anyway, I'm working here with like a year-long dry spell. I am technically eligible to donate blood. <laughs> which is like, okay, yeah, so the FDA allows gay men to donate blood if they've been abstinent for a year. So that is like this reverse scarlet letter for gay men who don't get laid. <laughs> And if your gay blood is no longer at risk, it is your responsibility to change that as soon as possible. So, um, my friend Matt is about to go on, and by that time I am pretty deep into a conversation with a gentleman we'll call Charles. Now, Charles, by all indications, is a very healthy gentleman. He, um... Uh, he's got a great build, he's very athletic, has a good body, um, and uh, he is also visiting from Taiwan. And so there's a bit of a language barrier, and I only mention this because it will come back into play. Not to foreshadow too much, but um, this conversation moves along and eventually becomes a done deal that uh, I'm, about, I'm going to meet Charles that night. 
again, this is a huge rarity for me. So uh, because I am a good friend first and a thirsty sex goblin second, <laughs> I sit and wait for Matt to go on and do his two numbers. And then after he's done, I immediately make a beeline to the exit and hail a cab to Charles's hotel. And then when I meet Charles, uh, he looks great, except... One thing uh, that sort of is off is that uh, his face looks about 10 years older than what his profile says he is. And I say this not because I think I have a good eye for these things or that um, there's any hint of ageism here, but there is a discernible disconnect (laughs) when there's a 40-something-year-old face that is attached to a 30-something-year-old neck. Um... And so anyway, uh, we start hooking up, and one thing leads to another. And in the thick of things, Charles stops me and asks me if I have any poppers. Now, um, for the inverse, poppers are alkyl nitrates. They um, dilate your blood vessels and your smooth muscles to facilitate anal sex. Um, And when all is said and done, they're pretty much harmless. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, And I've done them many times, as sexually inexperienced as I am. And so then uh, I tell Charles, no, I don't have them. Do you? He tells me he doesn't. But he says, I have something that will make you feel really good. So he hops off, goes to his duffel bag, pulls out a dop kit. And from that, he pulls out a little tiny Ziploc bag and the daintiest glass pipe and brings it over to me, and I see in the Ziploc bag um, there is some clear opalescent stuff. And um, this is, again, those pamphlets from Mrs. Wilkinson's class did not stick to my sex-deprived brain. And this was truly out of an after-school special. I did not know what was in front of me or what meth use looked like. And so I asked him, what is this? And he says, oh, um, and this is where the language barrier comes back. He says, I don't know what you guys call this in English. And I think, okay, well, um, if you're just filling this in for poppers, then I'm sure it's, it can't be terrible. It's probably just as harmless. He goes, yeah, 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 let's smoke some. So he takes out a Zippo lighter, lights the bulb, and tells me to take a hit. I do. Then for good measure, he tells me to take another hit. And so I do. And at this point, I say, okay, well, I feel okay. And then we have some amazing sex for the next, I don't know, seven hours. And all of it is incredible and gymnastic (laughs) and aerobic and we're jumping around the room, we're moving furniture, (laughs) we're reveling in our uh, feats of stamina. And I think to myself in the moment, wow, whatever is in that pipe is the best thing ever. Almost as if it were a mental stimulant that was an aphrodisiac and a euphoriant (laughs) and something that kept you alert and awake for hours and hours and hours. So post-coitus, after this long pelvic triathlon, (laughs) 
Charles and I are lying in bed. Um, oh, and first of all, I should go back and just quickly mention that when I didn't know what was in the pipe, I asked him if it was opium, and he said, what's that? And then I immediately felt racist for thinking a Taiwanese man would carry opium. <laughs> There's a lot of self-loathing in me. So anyway, I, I asked Charles, wow, what was in that pipe? It was incredible. I can't believe how not tired I am. And he's really just racking his brain and he says, oh, let me think of the name. Let me think of the name. Mm, I think some people in America call it tea. And that doesn't ring any bells for me. Um, and I go, oh, um, I'm not familiar. Do you, do you know of any other names? And he says, oh, Tina. T stands for Tina. Still doesn't ring any bells. Some of you guys might have known on that at that point. I still don't know. I ask him, okay, is there any other name? Because none of this is connecting with anything else that I know. And he goes, oh, Christina. <laughs> and at this point, I think, oh, like crystal meth. And then I ask him, well, what do you make this stuff out of? And he goes, oh, I think some people extract this from cold medicine or something. And I've been carded one too many times for getting NyQuil, so I know that I ask him point blank, was that meth? And Charles has the most terrifying eureka moment. Oh yeah, meth! <laughs> So, <laughs> in that moment, I am experiencing something weirdly metaphysical. My brain is processing the discovery that it is being fueled by meth while it is being fueled by meth. <laughs> so I left pretty soon after that, gave Charles a very hasty goodbye in the form of like a blowjob maybe. Um, and the following two days constituted the comeback, which was terrible, but like, it was okay. It was pretty boring actually. Like I, I know there's some juicy story waiting there for the come down to be like some requiem for a dream hellscape, but um, it was pretty tolerable. Um, mostly what it was was um, like me replaying the same nightmare, waking nightmare scenario in my head that my whole face was going to turn into like a giant scab. <laughs> um, yes. Um, thank you. Um, but the rest of the two days was just sort of spent in bed, um, addled by the embarrassment and swearing to myself that I would never tell a soul that I had done meth. Obviously, I have not upheld that. Um, I should point out that the chemistry of methamphetamine is not that much different from Adderall. The only main difference is that a methamphetamine contains a methyl group, which makes it more lipid-soluble so that it crosses over into the brain-blood barrier more easily. And uh, meth and Adderall can theoretically be used to treat the same things, ADHD, uh, fatigue, obesity. But um, that extra methyl group on med on meth, excuse me, um, makes all the difference. It um, tips the scale from it being a very manageable medication like Adderall into something that is sort of crazy and sometimes ruins lives into meth. Um, yeah, uh, that meth group uh, 
is also something that I think carries a lot of stigma. Thankfully, I haven't done math since uh, being with Charles. Uh, I don't plan on doing it again. Luckily, I, am, I don't have uh, so much access to meth. Otherwise, I would be turning into a mugshot right before your eyes. Um, what's that? Not even Adderall, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but a lot of other people still do use meth, whether or not they're in control of that. Gay men are nine times likelier to use meth than the general population, yeah. So that constitutes what's called a health disparity in public health research. Um, and that's not trivial, that is pretty significant. It confirms what uh, some people call the multiple minority stress theory, which is that um, people who intersect at multiple marginalized groups, such as gay men uh, of color, gay men uh, who are HIV positive, gay men who are of low income, or of all three of those things, um, will turn to meth as sort of their only means of escape. And I tell this story to check my own privilege for a lack of a better word, but also to point out this big blind spot that I've had for a while uh, since before I met Charles that a lot of gay men still do meth. It's still a part of the party culture, of course a part of the sex culture. Meanwhile, gay culture was uh, this community that I felt very comfortable in and very empowered in. Um, Everything I do project-wise that I touch is super gay. And I'm really proud of that. But this was something that I wasn't um, fully aware of. And so me taking two hits of meth isn't even that traumatic. Uh, It's not even that interesting, I don't think. But um, for people like Charles who might be abusing meth, uh, I hope that someday soon they are empowered to change their situations. And until then, I should just be very happy that I am no longer eligible to donate blood. Thank you guys so much. This is Risk. This is Alabama Shakes behind me now. And we just heard from the wonderful Bowen Yang. He just made the 50th fun. The 50th? The fop for. Oh, fuck. The microphone doesn't love me.
<laughs> the 50 funniest Brooklyn people out there. And you can find him on Twitter at Bowen Yang. Now, for our final story today, we are going to shift gears dramatically. This was a beautiful story that was shared at our Portland show at Revolution Hall a couple months ago. Eleanor Rush had never told a story in front of an audience before, and I think we had like 350 there that night. The death of someone quite young is a part of the story, so I know some people might want a heads up about that first. It's not an easy listen, but it's very beautiful. Uh, here she is now, the Risk Live show in Portland, Eleanor Rush, with a story we call The Undertaking. Ask you be gentle with me. It is my first time. <laughs> oh my! All right. So you guys ready for some tragedy core? All right. So I enrolled into mortuary school for probably all the wrong reasons. I was a really fucked up, pretentious goth kid. Not much has changed from that. I've just gotten older. So um, I've had a variety of abuse, which. Um, a lot of different flavors, and that's kind of wrapped up this year, so go team. Anyway, the thing about being a fucked up, pretentious goth kid is that you tend to want to gravitate to the darker things in life, and I was one of those people who thought if I collected traumas, that it would kind of validate the abuse I'd been through, and um, yeah, that's a bad idea, found out. Um, So I decided to go to mortuary school, because I thought it was dark and interesting and I thought I could see some gnarly stuff. And, um, well, I found out I was an asshole the first time I dealt with a family because it's not about you and it never will be about you. It's about their grief. It's about their pain. It's about being a human being to them in that time of need. The thing about mortuary school is it's pretty cool. Um, It's also the road straight to hell. They don't tell you that you're going to drag a body in view of family, probably in the woods, because people don't die in convenient places. (laughs) They don't tell you that you're going to really feel something for these people, and what they don't tell you is that sometimes you don't. I kind of compartmentalize like a champ. Um, It's the thing about abuse. You learn to deal with it. The hardest thing for me is the fact that empathy is overwhelming. I I feel a lot. And sometimes that blurs the edge of where I begin and where I end. So my way of dealing with that is not dealing with it. I box it away. And sometimes my brain thinks it's a great idea to annex parts of my personality until it's just that cold winter place where feelings don't happen anymore. And that's really good until it's really bad. So the story I want to tell you is the first time I kind of almost walked away. It's 2013, um, October. I just graduated mortuary school. It's, it's hard. I, I know what I'm walking into. I know the phone call. But I'm going to do it anyway because it's what I do. 
and the caffeine's buzzing in my veins like the overhead lights, and I feel nauseous and dizzy and sick, and there's a blue surgical sheet on the embalming table, and it's lumpy, and it's misshapen, and it's bloody, and it's small. I can't help but stare at white brick walls that are flecked with blood and the smell of chemicals and this fetid, terrible, sweet smell like Korean barbecue or rotting fruit. And it's, it's horrible. And I think this is my baseline vertigo, sleep deprivation, caffeine overdose. You know, why not? I'm in the right place to deal with that. So, um, yeah. I know what's under that sheet and I don't want to look. I, I, I just, I can't in that moment because I know what I'm walking into. So I end up sitting down on the ramp that goes up to our mortuary and I just can't because I have little brothers and um, I know what's under that sheet and I, I don't want to lift it up. And I, um, I think about them and I think about how they're small and how they would hold on to my shoulders and kiss my cheek like children do when the world hasn't hurt them yet and when they're innocent. And um, that smell is everywhere. It's in my hair and it's in my lungs. And I, I know I need to get up and put on my scrubs and take care of this because it's my job to take care of this. But right now I can't, okay? And I think I can call my boss up and I can tell him I have found the thing that means I can't do this anymore, that he has to wake his ass up and take care of this and I can go home. But I don't because the ghost of my childhood rises up in me and the discipline rolls in and the responsibility because it's my job to deal with it. But I can't, so I sit. And five minutes turns into 10 minutes, turns into 15, turns into 20. And that smell is everywhere. And I look at that table and everything falls down to that table. And I have to go up. So I put on my scrubs and I think of my little brothers. And I think about how life is cruel. And I mix my chemicals without really looking at what I'm doing because I know. And I set my playlist because I need something to keep me steady because music is a constant burial in the, the noise in my head. I just can think of my little brothers and how they would play and how they're small and they like sports and Eli is in Boy Scouts and Nikki is always questioning life and he's a little scientist and he just wants answers and I can relate to that. And I just think to myself, come on brain, we can have nice things. We can have nice things if you just do this. Don't panic. Just hold on. And I, I try to remember what breathing feels like because there's a dead child under that sheet. And as soon as I pull it back, I'll know. And I don't want to know. And there's something horrible in the not knowing, but there's something horrible in the knowing. So everything falls to pieces. It falls like art when I think of my little brothers and how we play in the Midwestern winter and I pull back that sheet and it's like a band-aid because every case is different 
It's the trauma that you sustain. It's knowing what flesh feels like when it parts with scissors. And I'm staring into blue, dehydrated eyes of a three-year-old child who's been autopsied, who's burned to death. And I know I have to fix it. And that's, that's pretty hard. So the music plays on and I try not to panic and I, I try to breathe and I count. I try to find something to keep me steady and I think if I can count in primes, if I can just show my work because that's what it is. And he's already been opened up. My boss has cut the stitches and his hair is bloody and so I smooth it back without meaning to. And he's small and he's pale and he's burnt and he's dead and the world is cruel and I can't help but think of that family in this moment. I can't help but think how would I feel if the roles were reversed and somebody was going to put their hands in my brother's chest cavity. But I have to show my work. I have to do this for them. So the music plays on and I try not to choke on this dark wave in my head and the white noise and the anxiety and everything that leads up to a certain disorder I'm never going to admit to. And I try not to dissociate because depersonalization is just a fucking cop-out. It's not real. It's just a symptom. And my hands are coated in blood and I don't really know whose hands those are as they move and I raise the arteries the femorals the brachials the carotids and I just try to get to the next song and I try to get to the next song and I think God please please let the carbon monoxide take him please that he didn't burn to death that his parents didn't have to hear him scream because someone loved him once, someone loves him still. He colored with crayons, someone held his hand, and now he's dead. So I work because that's all I can do because that's the nature of it. I'm a liar, I'm a magician, and through chemicals and cosmetics, through artfully draped clothing, I create a lie, an effigy of someone you've loved. And if I do it right, it helps you move on. And if I do it wrong, all you'll remember is that effigy. So I work, and he's small, and he's hurt, and my tools aren't enough. The is just too big. And I hold his little hand in mine, and I realize that the fluid isn't getting down to his fingers, and I'm going to have to hypo him. I'm going to have to stay there for hours with him, with that smell, and I'll have to work. And so I hypo his toes, I hypo his fingers, I hypo his face, the needle slips behind the ear into baby flesh, and I work because that's what I can do because I'll never know these parents and they'll never know me. I'm just a processor. I'm just a way station in this. And it has to be enough. So I work and the songs roll by. And I hope it's enough because I don't believe in the funeral ritual, but I hope that it's enough. I smooth his hair back and it's bloodstained and I, I wash it and I wash him and I stitch and I glue and I 
smooth as a hair back without really meaning to because I think of my brothers in this moment. And I find some Johnson & Johnson's baby detangler in the cabinet and I spray him down because he'll smell like baby. He won't smell like that horrible smell. And finally, finally I'm done. I call my mother after I take my gloves off, after I put my street clothes on, and I ask her to come over and I, I don't tell her why. And she says, okay. I hold my brothers to me and I bury my face in their hair and they're warm and they're breathing and I'm warm and I'm breathing and that's amazing because death won't take them. Violence won't come for them and in this moment everything is okay. And I let them go and they go and they play. And I speak with their father and I'm still shaking and I'm trying to process because it's a fair fucking terrible thing. And he tells me that what I'm feeling is empathy. I can't help but laugh because I don't know why. It's just this sick, dark amusement that comes with knowing what it feels like to be covered in someone else's blood and the sick amusement of the world when it goes so terribly wrong and the need, the hope that you make it better. And so... I go home after that and I eat what all post-college graduates eat because we're poor, a beef Hot Pocket, barbecue flavored. Because <laughs> I'm so fucking done with the thing, right? So I pass out because I've been up for maybe two days at this time. And then when I wake up, I smell that smell and it's immediate and that dark wave of panic is trying to pull me back under because I think, oh God, I'm being haunted? And then the next thought is, I deserve this, I deserve this because what kind of person can cut into human flesh? What kind of person can do that to another person? What kind of person? And then I realize, hey, dumbass, you just got barbecue sauce on you. You'll be okay. It's gonna be okay. And so I start laughing, and laughing turns into sobbing, and sobbing turns into those gut wrenching, ugly cry sobs, you know, where snot's bubbling out of your nose, and you just, you're not really fit for company at that point. <laughs> and it's what I need, it's the catharsis, because the thing about working with death is that it becomes your life. You don't get to have dinner with your friends, your anniversary with your partner, you don't get to see your kid's baseball game, because once you get that call, it's done. And the thing about that is you have to learn to let it go because all that darkness, all that misery gets inside you. It infects you. It metastasizes to all your major organs. And then you just can't do it anymore. You have to learn to let go. And that's what I had to do. Taking a break, 
stepping aside, I'm trying to learn what it is to be a human being or maybe find out what that is exactly. Not too sure. The thing is, it's to be human, to do this job. It's to hold someone's hand, to promise them nothing that you're unable to do. It's letting them take faith in you, telling them that you'll do the best you can, that you'll honor the fact that this person was a person to them, and you'll take care of it. Those are the good days when I believe in the funeral ritual, that I believe it matters. On the bad days, I don't believe in it at all. But the thing is, the work, it still goes on. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds behind me now. And we just heard from Eleanor Rush. I'm going to read the places we're coming next for you now. On June 17th, Risk is in Philadelphia. Come on out, Philly. On the 18th, we are in our new location in Los Angeles. That's the Bootleg Theater. And on the 22nd, We are in Brooklyn at the Bell House. That's an all-funny stories show. So if you want a a lot of laughs, come on out, Brooklyn, on June 22nd. On June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're still taking pitches for that one, folks. The pitch deadline is right about now, but the theme is worried. So pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions on July 8th. We're in San Francisco, still taking pitches for that one. The theme is resonant. July 27th, we're back at the Bell House. And July 30th, we're back at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. Remember, no matter what city you live in, you can pitch us at any time at risk-show.com submissions. And if you know someone who has an extraordinary story, tell them to pitch us stories about 
facing prejudice, near-death experiences, fighting in wartime, homelessness, crime, spiritual experiences, remarkable life transitions, violence, sexual breakthroughs, injuries, love stories, mysteries, tragedies, drug trips, outdoor adventures. I mean, the list is endless. If you know someone who has an extraordinary story, have them check us out at risk-show.com. The submissions page there has everything you need to know. Don't forget, Risk is listener-supported also. So if you love what we do, go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com and help us out. We dearly appreciate it. And if you want to know anything about the storytelling training we do in New York, in Los Angeles, in Minneapolis, and online, just go to thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Come over, come over. I put this up your ass.